1: Welcome to the New Books Network. You realize that for the last, I don't know, 3,000 years, we have been living in a world of scribal schools.
0: From Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, a podcast that looks backward to see into the future. Our idea is to assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events by looking at the books that shaped the world we inherited. Today, the hosts are Elizabeth Ferry. Hello, Elizabeth. Hi, John. Noted anthropologist, Elizabeth Ferry. And me, John Plotz. Hello, me. And we are joined today by Martin Puckner. Hello, Martin. Thanks for uh, having me. Uh, Great to have you. And you are, I will tell you, the Byron and Anita Wien Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Harvard University. Uh, you're the editor of the Norton Anthology of World Literature, the author, among many books, of *The Written World*. The Power of Stories to Shape People, History, and Civilization, published by Penguin in 2017. Okay, so welcome, Martin, to our miniature sound-insulated bar. Um, think of yourself as grabbing a tumbler of your favorite amber liquid, or maybe a carafe of your favorite amber liquid, and getting ready to banter, okay? you've I'm ready. You feel banter ready? You <laughs> yeah, look banter absolutely. ready. You look like banter weight. Okay. So we're going to hear more about the specifics of your book, Martin, The Written World, in a few minutes. Um, but I just want to start by noticing that this is, in effect, um, that what your book does is, in effect, a meta version of what our podcast tries to do. That is, we try to isolate single books and understand how they resonate with the present world. But you actually go whole hog and you put our entire modern culture, as it were, under the shadow of books. So you want to explore how the technology of writing developed over centuries and the ways that sometimes with our, without our even noticing or acknowledging it, its basic assumptions shape us. Um, so that's you have meta us, and we appreciate that. So with the pleasant prospect of turning to hearing about your book shortly, Martin, um, we want actually want to start today um, with Elizabeth talking about one of the oldest books out there. So Elizabeth, turning over to you.
2: Okay. Nice, nice to meet you. Um, so uh, yeah, I wanna start um, by talking about uh, one of the texts that Martin discusses in the earlier part of his book, um, which is the Epic of Gilgamesh, and I wanna focus, this is my contribution for the week, um, a particular translation, um, or actually it's known as a new rendering in English verse uh, by David Ferry, No Relation, just kidding. It's my dad. <laughs> By my dad. Um, and, um, it's the law of the father. That's right. <laughs> um, and uh, in a second, I'm going to read you just a few lines from it. Um, one of the things I really appreciated about the, about the book, The Written World, is the sense that it conveys of um, literature and writing and particular bundles of writing as contributing to a kind of, um, I don't know, transtemporal Society of writing you could talk about it. Maybe you could talk about it as a kind of fabric of writing. Um, and I think that my um, father's work and particularly Gilgamesh has been a um, really good example of that. I sometimes um, sort of say to my father that he... In the same way in which you might find architectural salvage stores in kind of hipstery neighborhoods that have like all kinds of little features yeah. from houses and stuff, um, that his specialty is poetic salvage. And
1: I have to say, I I love this rendering uh, of your father's. I find it very moving that it's <laughs> your father who did it. And I would say it's, to my mind, it's much more than salvage. It's really complete renovation, it got uh-huh. renovation of the, <laughs> Gil- the, Ak- the or Gilgamesh because it comes across in this version as such a readable, such a, in some sense, familiar sound because of the ionic pentameter. Uh So I think it's it's actually
0: a great example of a complete renovation.
2: That's great. I like the gut renovation idea. Yeah, Yeah, and I think...
0: Though I kind of want to put a footnote down to cut back to the question of sound, because one of the things I really like about what you do with the question of writing, Martin, is that you make us think twice about the possibility of sonic or acoustic preservation because things can be preserved in writing that are mm. like it's like the non-oral side of the language that gets saved so what mm-hmm. it means to save the sound which i'm not saying you can't save the sound you definitely can but uh it it is interesting because uh, i think about writing as going to the far end of language away from the sound so
2: hmm. yeah i wonder if meter would be an interesting yeah, sort that's of bridge right. for that right because it's kind of encoded sound is encoded into the question of meter that's
0: right and i feel like there's a lot of latin words that we know how to pronounce only because we have them in poems that Uh tell us what the Uh metrical rule was yeah it's a good point okay there's so much to connect there to what your book is about martin but um maybe we can just um you know pivot here and say, um, you know, you've written this amazing book, which there's so many things about it I would love to talk about. I'd love to talk about the stages of writing that you describe because you have a really subtle argument that you lay out right at the beginning of this book, which is enormously accessible, but also is arguing on a number of levels. And so you have this argument where you take us through the different stages that you see writing uh, having gone through to bring us into the modern age. Um, so I'd love to talk about that, but maybe there's also a direct connection to the Gilgamesh stuff that you wanna?
1: Yeah, talk? I mean, the Epic of Gilgamesh for me is it's the beginning of my story. I try to tell the story of literature really, which I understand as the intersection of oral storytelling and writing technologies. And since Mm. Mesopotamia is the place where the first writing system was developed, where that first crossing of oral storytelling and writing technologies happened, it makes sense that the first great written piece of literature in in, in world literature came from that part of the world, came from Mesopotamia. And so Mm -hmm. the epic of Gilgamesh is that for me. And what's so crucial about it is that from the beginning, it presents itself as a written text. And that's Mm -hmm. very different from later epics, like the Homeric epics that that present themselves Mm -hmm. as being sung orally. The world of both Homeric epics is a world without writing, with one small exception. And so Mm -hmm. it's really a very oral world, even though it's much later. But this much earlier text, first epic, the Epic of Gilgamesh, really is very clear about being written down, that this is a Mm -hmm. world that invented writing, that that's a great achievement of this culture. And so Mm -hmm. really fully embraces writing in a way that's very exciting for me. Mm.
2: I think you really get at that um, very inventively by kind of telling the parallel story of how the writing was decoded in the 19th century and how that sort of um, the, you know, I mean, that's sort of a, it's a trope that we have read in kids' books and so on, but sort of the way in which you, you link it to these questions of, the fundamentalness of the of the written word and of and of this as writing is really effective, I think
1: and that story of the rediscovery really speaks to one feature that's so important I mean that writing endures that it starts a kind of sense of history where you can discover old texts and mm-hmm. know that you in some way through writing can speak to the future and that's uh, very clear in one of the biggest fans of the epic of Gilgamesh Mm -hmm. the much later King Ashurbanipal who finds these tablets and starts to read them and thinks of them is so amazed by the fact that they are so ancient from before the flood he says and then he also imagines that they will endure into the future, and they did, al- although they almost disappeared. They were right. discovered really by accident in the 19th century in the, S- in the Seifert. So it really, it, it's, that, it's a very atypical example in some sense, that a piece of literature that was so important disappeared for 2,000 years mm-hmm. and then reappeared. And, Mart, in
0: that context, what's the significance of the fact that we have Gilgamesh in these two entirely different languages? That it's, that it's, that some of the stories are preserved in one language Uh, group And then others in a later language. Like, do we imagine that as telling a story about how dead languages can keep procreating even, you know, back in the early days? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And the fact that the whole
1: concept of a dead language was really a a kind of inadvertent byproduct of writing. There were no dead languages Mm -hmm. before writing, because if a language died... It died. It, it, was um, not, it was no longer and, there to be
2: called dead, right? Yeah.
1: Exactly. So, so. But what's interesting about the writing system, cuneiform writing, is that because it wasn't phonetic, it could be used for different languages. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. So there are these early Sumerian songs, mm-hmm. the earliest layer of the Epic of Gilgamesh, and then the, the later Akkadian ones. But they all used the same writing system.
0: Yeah. And how does that get to that question that we raised earlier or that I was tugging on earlier about sound? So you're saying that the sounds were not preserved. That's right. I mean, that's the, for me, the
1: interesting part of the story is what happens when the alphabet Emerges and the alphabet Mm -hmm. is, you know, for us it's such a familiar. It's so clearly much easier than a writing system like the cuneiform, the cuneiform system, or other logographic systems where you have hundreds of signs. Mm -hmm. But the uh, the alphabet was really. A kind of conceptual breakthrough because all the earlier writing systems had a connection between the signs and concepts and and um, what basically had to happen with the alphabet is that you had to sever writing from meaning you would chop up words Mm -hmm. into meaningless sound entities and then recombine them and so there's something that happens in that was first developed in phoenicia in today's lebanon and then was perfected in Mm -hmm. greece so the first sort of fully sound poem in a way were the ones that were preserved in alphabetic languages
2: although it's interesting like it it seems both potentially like a breakthrough in a kind of progressive sense but but something is lost too right because you know for instance I mean, and it's not completely lost, like we see this in Chinese, right? That there's, you know, different, same writing system, which is, you know, concept-based writing system. Um, And then people who would never be able to understand each other speaking face-to-face have this complete kind of transparency through the written word. Right. Now, in in East Asia, my example for that is what's
1: called brush talk, Mm -hmm. where The Japanese would send emissaries to to China and they couldn't Mm -hmm. understand each other orally, but they could speak by using the Chinese signs Mm -hmm. because they both use these Chinese signs. So they could communicate that way, the way we might communicate with someone else who whose language we don't speak, but who uses the same Arabic numerals, right? We could right. negotiate with someone by, right. by by writing numbers on a piece of paper because uh-huh. these numbers are not f- phonetically coded, but abstract symbols.
0: Right. Right. right, Except nowadays we do the same thing by talking into Google Translate and holding true. your <laughs> cell phone up <laughs> to <true>. each other. <laughs> right. So I just, I <laughs> just want to say... It's tablet, right? <laughs> it's true. It's the new yeah. kind of tablet. But I guess in terms of... Uh, one of the other briefs of the podcast is to try to figure out where we are in, you know, 2019, wh- where these writing technologies are. So just, um, I hope we c- we circle back to that question of the visibility of writing that you're describing. Because in some ways, one way to think about what's happening now is that we have all of this invisible writing. That is like all this code, which is written to mm-hmm. tell our computers what to do. So somebody wrote it, it's in language, but then it become it becomes subterranean, so mm. that everything we're surrounded by has all sorts of writing in it, which is inaccessible to us. So, mm. um, so Martin, can you talk? A, can you talk a little bit more about the historical stages that you mm. that you see? Um,
1: yes, and what was important for me is basically to defamiliarize our our conception of how literature is produced, namely by professional authors mm-hmm. who invent new stories, original mm-hmm. stories, and then bring these stories to a mass audience or an audience through print or other methods of, of replication. And what's so striking is that for the first D- two three thousand years in the story of literature, it's a very different form. There aren't really authors. There are uh, scribes and scribes don't invent stories. They collect them and mm-hmm. arrange them and preserve them mm-hmm. and collate them mm-hmm. and frame them and, that, them. and accumulate them. Mm-hmm. They're these producing these kind of story bundles or text bundles, mm-hmm. um, like the Epic of Gilgamesh or the, the Hebrew Bible or, or later, uh, uh, story collections like the Arabian Nights yeah. and others, mm-hmm.
2: um, or or famous anthologies like the Norton Anthology, for instance, right? <laughs> that's true. <Yeah>.
0: true. <laughs> right. But also famous anthologies like the Bible, too, right? right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. so yeah. So I I want to pick up on the word that you use, Elizabeth, curate, because I feel like that's a very much a word of the moment yeah. now. Like <laughs> we live in a society in which content creation is cheap, but curating is valuable. Mm-hmm. Like uh-huh. what you you know the the um, the people who have their hands on the levers of power right. are not the people who produce the words originally, but the ones who distribute them. You know, it's when Amazon chooses or to, serve you. to Or at
2: least they try claim, to make claim, right? That's true. Yeah, yeah. I think that's but, a... That's an ongoing struggle.
0: It's an ongoing struggle. That's true. So, yeah, can you can you talk more about that? Um, do you think of those scribes as doing an act of conscious curation? Because it seems to me when you bundle, you know, it could be bundling because it's a job. You're aggregating. Or it could be bundling where you're really making meaning from the way that you bundle stories together.
1: Oh, I definitely think, I mean, that was mm-hmm. their main job, I would say, to make meaning through selection and combination and framing and presentation and I I think you're so right that the same mode has now come back and I would say precisely because that standard modern system of production I just described with professional authors who invent Mm -hmm. original stories is now with our media revolution breaking down, and to some extent, we get these older versions coming back, and the mm-hmm. primacy now placed on curation, I think, yep. is an example of that, mm-hmm. that we, again, are moving into a world where there aren't these professional—it's not dominated by these professional authors who have complete control mm. over their stories. There's all this kind of writing and material out there, and what really matters is how to collect and frame it and filter and present it, mm-hmm. right. curate it. Yeah, yeah.
2: Although I would, again, maybe feel like that's, I mean, so if we could think of that process by which, you know, kind of authorship is becoming democratized, then... It's in the interest of certain people to say, "Oh, wait! It's actually the curating that's valuable. It wasn't the writing." You know, as soon as more people can write, suddenly.
0: Oh, right. Um, so you're you're basically putting pressure on the question of what value means there. Yeah. Because there's a world yeah. of kind of proliferating and I mean, uh, slash fiction, or and, you know, right, all these and and there's a there's a um,
2: you know a sort of um, dethroning of certain kinds of publishing houses or other kinds oh, of I see. things. Right? So
0: in other words, once publication becomes democratized, it loses value. And therefore. Yeah
2: there needs to be these sort of niches. I mean, the, the parallel uh, I wouldn't might want be, to join
0: to any club that would have me as a member, basically. Maybe, like, yeah, yeah. Or
2: the parallel might be like, um, okay, as financial inst- information becomes, you know, more widely accessible, um, then you need to have people who are portfolio managers, right? Right. Who are the ones who, you know, and suddenly the expertise is not understanding a particular company it's oh no 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 you have to understand how these things go together which is yeah. a form of cur- curation right though
0: though Martin, for in terms of the work you did about the scribes, do you get a sense of the scribe as existing in a kind of elevated social status? like are mm. they is that a priest class? Yeah, it's not necessarily priests, but sometimes they are, but definitely elevated. Uh, it
1: was one wonderful for me to read some of these earliest uh, uh, fragments from scribal schools mm. where you get uh, um, you know, we're talking about three thousand years ago you get students complaining about their teachers saying oh my teacher was <laughs> too hard on me my teacher beat me my teacher you know yeah. is a taskmaster <laughs> and and you also have and i think we as teachers can sympathize with that fragments from teachers saying you know this generation of students <laughs> is not taking things as seriously <laughs> a bunch as of we lazy used to so <laughs> exactly. and so and uh, so you get uh, so it, you know you realize yeah. that for the last i don't know 3000 years we have been living in a world of scribal schools yeah (laughs) yeah so then
0: the next stage in your argument and forgive me martin if i butcher it but you are interested in this sort of great teacher moment and i think you think about uh, probably um it's socrates right and Mm -hmm. um i imagine and confucius Confucius, Confucius. and jesus and jesus right Mm -hmm. and so there, I, the int- if, I, if I understand the quirk of your argument, which I really like, is that the teacher is presented as anti-writing in some ways. Like there's oral, mm. charismatic presence of the teacher. And yet, of course, you know, as with the story of Socrates and Plato, we only get them because somebody writes them down. Right. Mm. So. And so for me, the interesting thing
1: is that these teachers, these charismatic teachers, live in some of the most literate cultures of their time. Yeah. Mm. So they could have written, and they chose Not to. And they, as you say, they really base everything on the primacy of the spoken word, this live interaction with their students. And Mm -hmm. of those, Socrates makes the most explicit argument against writing, that you can't control it, that you can't ask follow-up questions. There's Mm -hmm. lots of scope for misinformation, very similar to the wars we now have about the internet, uh, um, Mm -hmm. that there's fake news through writing and so on and Mm -hmm. so forth. And so that's how they operate. So it's really almost a moment as writing takes takes over more and more functions of these societies. There's this moment of panic or moral worry or thinking about... So is it it a backlash argument then? I think it is to some extent a backlash, yes. Hmm. But then the interesting thing is, as you point out with Plato and others, that the teachers die. And Mm -hmm. for some time, usually there's a, a, a tradition of oral transmission, in mm. the case of Socrates, almost mm-hmm. immediate turn of writing. But sooner or later, these students, in a sense, betray their teachers. They use writing even though their teachers had not. And then the students write down mm-hmm. their masters words So the interesting th- thing though is that these texts these students produce are very different from these older scribal texts because I think these students try to preserve some fo- some of that live interaction uh-huh. mm-hmm. in a sense some of that rejection of writing in right. these texts so they produce like Plato dramatic dialogues mm. they mm-hmm. show. The back and forth between teacher and students, they describe these situations mm-hmm. in a way. They almost as if they channeled that. Or resistance.
2: sermons. They, they write down sermons. Exactly.
1: Right. But also in the case of Jesus, there are lots of, you know, conversations, dialogues right. with followers. So to me, it's almost as if they channel that resistance, that panic, that skepticism, this, this Luddite uh, uh-huh. attitude towards writing. Yeah. Back into writing and produce these very vivid anecdotal, dramatic dialogic texts mm-hmm. so then what mm-hmm. do
0: you make of the kind of overt intertextuality of the New Testament with the Old Testament, the way in which the the words the words of Jesus as recorded or the words of the you know original sages of the New Testament are also consciously looking back at you know the antitype of the of the Hebrew Bible that went before
1: yeah, I think it's one of the most fascinating moments in literary history because, right, you have Jesus who doesn't write, who presents himself as the fulfillment of the scripture, but who doesn't produce his own Mm.
0: scripture. Does Jesus himself give evidence of knowing the the Hebrew, Absolutely. scripture. he does. Yes. Okay. so he
1: knows the Hebrew Bible. Uh-huh. He's mm-hmm. learned it. Yeah. He knows how to write. There's yeah. one scene in which he writes something in sand, uh, but that's the only moment of of writing, mm-hmm. and then the huh. wind blows it off, and we huh. the the the, the uh, we don't know what he right. writes. Right. Which is so,
2: itself a criticism of writing, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah.
1: And so. But then his followers, of course, produce texts. But texts, at, at at first, as I said, try to capture this vivid, uh, uh, you know, sermonizing, dialogic, mm-hmm. charismatic figure who didn't mm-hmm. write. But then, as Christianity develops its own identity and splits off from Judaism, it more and more these texts acquire the the status of a new sacred scripture. And then the question is, how will they relate to the older scripture? And that's where you get the Old Uh, Testament and the New Testament. And so over time, they acquire that status, but not initially. Initially, they're just uh, student writing about their charismatic master. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to say for it?
0: But mm-hmm. so could you say qualitatively that that moment of the intertextuality between the old and new is akin to the bundling of stories that the scribes are doing before, or is it of a different order?
1: So I would say that you can describe what we would call the New Testament as itself a bundle of stories because yeah. it's, you know, it's the Gospels, it, it's Paul's mm-hmm. letters, it's and so on and so forth. Sure. It's a bunch of different kinds of yeah. texts. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me the of these of this new corpus of texts back to the old, then what what now is called looking backwards from this Christian the perspective, old the Old yeah. Testament, yeah. that's a very unusual and, and kind of unique uh, uh, moment. Mm. Uh, you don't have that with the texts of the other master teachers. You don't have Buddhist texts trying to Reconnect themselves mm. to the Vedas, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. You have mm. it to some extent, maybe in the te- in the uh, in the Confucian traditions, because there you have students of the of Confucius writing down his texts. But mm-hmm. then, interestingly, Confucius, because he becomes so important, is retroactively seen as the editor of one of the first. A fundamental text of mm-hmm. the Chinese literary tradition, and mm-hmm. the Classic of Song, even though he didn't write them and he didn't edit them, but mm-hmm. stories circulate that he is the yeah. editor, and so that's why we call them Confucian classics. So maybe that is something to some extent similar. Uh, yeah. to that's what really you interesting. Have with the New Testament and the Old Testament.
0: Yeah. Um, so I kind of want to pivot at this mm-hmm. point to say that you know we you end your book, Martin, by mm-hmm. saying that a second revolution in the written world is upon us mm-hmm. and I'd love to um, make that the occasion for like the final mm-hmm. section of this podcast in which mm-hmm. we think about what it means uh, for that new revolution to come. I mean you already heard my point about computer code as a form of writing but I think there's a lot of ways that we could think about mm-hmm. this new electronic age we're in. So um, can I can I yield the floor to you on that yeah. question? Yeah.
1: Definitely and, and you know I basically the motivation for my book was the experience we are living through that we live through this fundamental revolution in writing technologies and we feel that it has profound impacts and mm-hmm. i wanted to in a sense to get some orientation some guidance from the past what were earlier moments when similar revolutions happens so, of course with print but also with paper and smaller revolutions mm-hmm. along the way so that's very much what's the motivation sort of the prehistory of that and um and what was interesting for me is that I see now some of the older modes of writing and the organization of the written world coming back. We just spoke about the the, the return of editing or mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. curating, powerful mm-hmm. curators, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But there are others too. I mean, you know, we we started this podcast with the with the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is written on these clay tablets, tablets went out of fashion, were replaced by scrolls and the Roman invention of the codex, which we know by the book. Mm -hmm. But now, of course, for the first time, we are using tablets again. Mm -hmm. And in my book, I have images of ancient scribes who are sitting cross-legged with Looking down at the tablet in their uh, in, in their lap, and you know, mm-hmm. if I squint outside the door here in the library, I bet I can not find someone who's sitting right yeah. in that same pose with the tablet. Yep. But does,
0: that doesn't that doesn't feel like a little bit of a just a, a a shallow rhyme to you though, because those tablets are so protean, whereas the point about the those earlier tablets was that they were so fixed.
1: Yeah, but it's it's a question about formats. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The other format that has come back is the scroll. The yeah. scroll mm-hmm. was more or less replaced by the book, and we mm-hmm. are scrolling down computers. Yeah, again, that's really interesting. Yeah. Including on right. these tablets. Yeah. Yeah. So in part because computers and code text as a continuous yeah. Yeah. line yeah. of text rather than splitting it up into yeah. pages. Yeah. Can, and it of changes
2: our bodies and our ways of seeing. And, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I
1: do think that the, the these formats and these forms actually do matter. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not to say that there's a lot that's new, but it, I've been struck yeah. by the fact that just the, the way our bodies relate to mm-hmm. reading devices and, and forms, mm-hmm. that there there's some something from the deep history of writing that has yeah. suddenly come back.
0: So so now I'm just remembering dimly from college hearing a lecture by Peter Staleybrass in which he was saying that the invention of the codex, the you know the book with a spine, was a revolution in discontinuous access. You know that the point is that the scroll you have to gives turn you the page. yeah, right. So no no not that you have to turn the page that you can go anywhere so that you get people jumping back and forth oh, so the in, oh, I see. that oh, the yeah, index yeah. basically that, evolves at the same time yeah. that the yeah, yeah, that yeah. the book does. Yeah. So um, but by that logic, it seems like the electronic writing we have is a con- is a, like intensification of that discontinuous access. I mean, I hear what you're saying about scrolling, but the thing to me about... In, in, the searchable in, index. Yeah, like, that, like the right? searchability yeah. of the way that the hyperlinked logic of reading on uh-huh. a screen is that you're continuously able to just jump to some other place in the text. It's,
1: I think it's both. I mean, I've certainly had the experience of having to, you know, needing to jump forward in a on a computer and having yep. to scroll through, especially in some cases where you have to, uh, where it simulates books and maybe it's a, you know, the computer's a little slow and you have yeah. to think, oh my God, I wish I could just take the physical book and flip right. forward yes. and that's do it. Although, right. of course, with the index, you have searchability. Yeah, but, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just
0: thinking of control F. I mean, yeah. control F for me is like, you know, that's a <laughs> habitual movement. It's yeah. like, I want to find the that's next your time. move. <laughs> yeah, like tell me the next time the word papyrus shows up right, in this text. Right, so, yeah. That's yeah. 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 It's both those things. Yeah, so this is the moment, I think, in the podcast when we switch to um, what we call recallable books. So we basically ask you, uh, each of us is going to say a book, you know, given the nature of this conversation, a book that we think would be, um, you know, the kind of thing that somebody who enjoyed this podcast might want to go off and read. Mm-hmm. So Martin, as our guest, can I offer you first shot?
1: Well, in the spirit of this conversation, I'm yeah. not going to recommend a book because a book, John, is from the past age of literature. We've now entered a pay, an age with um, fan fiction. I know, where, where, that was where so everyone, 2018 of me, I'm where, sorry, know. yeah. <laughs> where yeah. everyone is an author, so I'm gonna recommend a website, uh, Wattpad. Wattpad okay. start, is a, it started, it, it's a Canadian website. It's now in every country except yep. China. Uh-huh. Um, and it started as a fan fiction mm-hmm. site yeah. and is primarily used originally by teenagers, often female teenagers or people who pretend to be teenagers. (laughs) (laughs) And and it started as a fan fiction site, but it's grown and exploded into a story-telling universe. And there are all kinds of stories that are being written by users, by readers, by Mm. people who don't necessarily think of themselves as authors in the Gutenberg sense yeah. and mm-hmm. who generate stories. And I've amazed I'm amazed how widespread it is. I was talking about it uh, in my in a graduate seminar a, f- a few weeks ago and one of the one of the students said, Oh yeah, my mother has two novels on, on Wattpad. Yeah, well. And so it's it's really and now some of these, because this website has grown so much, it has so many users, that the top stories get big book deals, they get Netflix tie-ins, it's mm. become huge. Huge, mm-hmm. and the website. What's fascinating to me is that the website, people running the website, uh, they have an unbelievable, have unbelievable data about storytelling and different kinds yeah. of stories and the way mm-hmm. readers interact with stories. So I think. There's all, it, it, it both registers how storytelling and who produces stories and how we use them and interact with them and how we distribute them and circulate them changes. But I think it will also, the analytics of it will actually tell us a lot about storytelling in the future. Mm. So
0: you can post in any language?
1: It's in many languages. Yeah. It is,
0: yeah. And are they translated? Do people read things in other languages or do they do you just stick to your own sure. language I, community? That's or? a
1: good question. I'm not sure about translation. Yeah, mm. I'm not sure how that works.
0: That is fascinating. Mm. Okay. A little
2: bit. So I'm also going to go in the fan fiction route and I also not suggest a book, uh, but it's a particular fan fiction story, uh, which is called No Reservations Narnia, which is the Anthony Bourdain an imagined Anthony Bourdain <laughs> episode in, in Narnia, um, which kind of brings together both <laughs> this. Like, Do they eat wood shrew? <laughs> um, no, but they uh, they do dine with werewolves, you know, because they have, the, you know, he's sort of having all these ceremonial dinners and they're super bland and starchy. And yep. then finally he meets a werewolf who takes him to the, you know, because there's always, the, in Anthony Bourdain, there's always the moment, the dark towards the wild, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, but, you know, so that's sort of both an example of this collectivity that we're describing and also the creation of a world and, and how it might get um, literarily inhabited.
0: Okay. So this is great. So you guys have backed me into the opposite corner. So <laughs> I was going to recommend, and I still recommend, it's a great book, a uh, book by Daniel, uh, sorry, Dennis Tenen called Plain Text, The Poetics of Computation, which is basically a book about um, thinking about computer code as a form of writing. Mm-hmm. But... Given this um, uh, world of Wattpad and the proliferation of these stories belonging to us all, I'm going to endorse the opposite, which is something I heard about on a podcast recently, something called the Broudigan Library. Do you okay. guys know this? As in
2: Richard Browdigan.
0: As in Richard Broudigan. So okay. Richard Broudigan in one of his novels came up with the idea of a library in which people deposited single unique books that were not meant to be published and reproduced. They were just meant to sit in that library. So in other mm. words, you bring the wow. object itself and it sits in a room um, and that then becomes the library. So it's like library as a site of anti-publication. So mm. so you go for you, 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 okay. you, you go to a room in which the only thing you know about these books is that they only exist in this space. So um, you guys both look in- intensely skeptical, but no, it's a different way of thinking about skeptical. writing. I think it's yeah. like the, it's like singling out the one place in the world that this writing exists. Yeah. So um, I mean, in a, in a sense, maybe you can actually think of it as a curation. So it be, it's a curation experiment, here, here's right? Here's
2: a question: Would it be? But not would curation it achieve... is promulgation.
0: Curation is right. containment, right?
2: Yeah. Would it achieve its? Would the Browdican Library achieve its goal even better if there were no readers?
0: Um. Huh. Uh, say more. You mean well, because if it were just going down a black hole? Well,
2: if we're if we're continuing on this kind of salvage it's idea, it's like enter or the
0: or singularity. It, yeah, sort of. Right. Yeah.
2: Like if you, you know, well, that the would idea, be the potlatch
0: version where you brought it and burned it. You know.
2: Sort of, but. Then you would still be in some kind of relationship with the text, even if you brought it. But there's something about, uh, you know, we've, we keep talking about how people are reading things or hearing things and then they're and then they're doing something with them. So this is the going there and nothing is done with it. Or, or that's my question, right? Is it if it had no readers, would that be more what what it was trying to do?
0: It's a super good question. I don't know. Like, my vision of it is that it's attractive to people because of its one-offness. So that's why it Mm -hmm. still feels like a curatorial project because Mm -hmm. the curation there is kind of like the Museum of Jurassic Technology or something. Like, Mm -hmm. it's the the thing that might have been out in the world but actually isn't. It's only here Mm -hmm. so it's um you know that uh like in the 19th century a lot of museums have like plaster casts of famous sculptures so you could go and see yeah yeah. so this would be the antithesis of that right um but yeah Uh, um I don't know is it is it like authenticity porn it, that's, I don't know yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, it's an interesting question yeah. uh, it reminds me of the discussion we had with Lisa Gittleman about right. the allographic versus the autographic right. so do you know this distinction Martin between yeah. Yeah. yeah okay so
2: yeah so this is yeah the the intensification of the autographic
0: <laughs> meaning right the yeah. the notion that uh, the, the the thing that actually lives in a place versus right. the allographic right. being the right. thing that potentially lives anywhere um, okay well I uh, uh, I'll continue to battle for the Brownigan. But, uh, <laughs> I'm not uh, against it. I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> you just think it could be flushed out of toilet and it would still be a <laughs> Brownigan library. I'm against again. it. It's precious. Yes. Is yeah, it <laughs> a little bit? <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't, I, I, I'm yeah. not sure I'm against it. I no, Go I think you're allowed to be on, against it. Come on, make a stand. Well, yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. took it back. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, right. it sort of depends what you mean by the word precious, right? So <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of agree it is precious, yeah. but you know, Gollum had a point. My precious. <laughs> um, okay, and we're in there. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a good. Uh, yeah, yes. unless you guys want to do Gollum imitations too, we could. Uh, well, we
2: do. Did do the one with the Beckett at the end, so we could all do all do my precious. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All
0: right. One, two, three. Precious. 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 Oh I like that, it sounds like a musical. Um, okay, so recall this book is the brainchild of uh, John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. It's affiliated with public books and is recorded and edited in the media lab of the Brandeis Library. Our music comes from a song by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy, Fly Away, I think a very beautiful song. Uh, sound editing is by Anil Tripathi in the anthropology department and production assistance including website design and social media is done by Matthew Schratz from English. Um, we always want to hear from you with our your comments criticisms or suggestions for future episodes you can email us directly or connect us via social media and our website uh, recallthisbook.org and finally if you enjoyed today's show please uh, be sure to write a review or rate us on itunes or stitcher or wherever you get your podcast and you may be interested in checking out past episodes including topics like opiate addiction minimalism both literary and uh aesthetic um as well as home design minimalism uh old and new media and also an interview with madeline miller author of circe which is a retelling of some episodes of the odyssey from below or from the side um and upcoming episodes are likely we're still finalizing the second half Mm -hmm. of season one but the likely upcoming episodes are going to include a conversation with uh I think you can call him a living legend, Samuel Delaney, science fiction author, Uh, discussion of animals, poetical and otherwise, with the poet David Ferry, who we heard a lot about today, and biologist E.O. Wilson. Um, And also, a recall this book first, a collaboration with Harvard's Mahindra Humanities Center. And in that live episode, you will hear me arguing about distraction with Bard professor marina von zeulen uh, i perform a monty python monologue about word association football and marina talks about her brain scan which is just as scary as that sounds um, in any case martin thank you so much for coming today
1: thanks for having me it was really fun
0: it was very fun and uh thank you all for listening
2: thanks